on this episode. At the time, I was figuring out that if I put seven and three quarters, I was not going to be a power forward with the Lakers. <laughs> I was not going to be the second baseman for the Dodgers. Buster Olney, a Vanderbilt Student Communications alumni, has been working in the world of sports journalism for nearly a decade. Starting here at the Vanderbilt Hustler as a sports columnist and making his way to companies like the Nashville Banner, the New York Times, and now ESPN. I had the wonderful chance to sit down with him to talk about his role as a sports journalist and to provide tips to those of you out there who want to be the leading sports reporter. From the newsroom of the Vanderbilt Hustler, this is VU History with Jalen Sims. So tell us, how did you get your start in sports journalism before ESPN? Well, way, way, way before I was 15 years old uh, and a New York Times columnist named Red Smith came to speak at my high school. Uh, and that was about the time I was figuring out that at five foot seven and three quarters, I was not going to be a power forward with the Lakers. <laughs> I was not going to be the second baseman for the Dodgers. <laughs> and uh, Red Smith, uh, you know, he was in his mid 70s. He was the first sports writer to ever win a Pulitzer Prize. And I got to hear the passion that he had for what he did so like right away the light bulb went off and what a great combination within two weeks i was writing for my high school paper which you know came out every week and so from that point forward just took off and i pretty much you know knew from that age of 15 what i wanted to do really your inspiration or is there like anything deeper that oh that was that i mean i you know, my uh, folks, my mom in particular, uh, you know, my grew up in a, in, you know, my, my parents were divorced when I was five. And so my mom and I were incredibly close and she loved writing. She was an excellent writer herself. She was really uh, smart. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we were encouraged. A lot of my friends growing up in central Vermont, as I mentioned, I grew up on a dairy farm. Vermont? You know, oh, God. Yeah. How was, how was yeah. it living in Vermont? Oh, I, I had a great upbringing. You know, my folks made up their minds that they, they didn't want us watching television. They wanted us to be outside. And so we they bought a dairy farm when I was nine years old uh, with 50 cows and 120 acres. And so myself and my older sister and my two little my little brother and sister, after my mom got remarried, uh, we all grew up outside on a farm. Yeah. When did you kind of realize that you wanted to go to Vanderbilt? Because you ended up getting your education here at Vanderbilt and you wrote for the hustler, right? Uh, I I would be willing to bet because it took me so long to get through school uh -huh. <laughs> because I had the in and in and out because the money issues. Yeah, uh, I would be willing to bet that I probably have more inches written at the hustler than anybody in the history of the hustler. <laughs> <laughs> and if you looked at my grades transcript when I was there. That would also reflect the fact that I did a lot of work for the hustler. Yeah, yeah, I <laughs> I was I, not a good student. I totally understand the hustler saves a lot of us staff writers. So you you land your first job, your first major job at ESPN, well the New York Times really. What 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 did you what, what was the feeling? What was it like to finally have reached the pinnacle as I would call it of journalism? So I bounced around, you know, I worked at the Nashville Banner for a couple of years, as I told you before we started, publisher of the Banner made a deal with me, he'd pay off the last of my school if I worked there for two years, I moved to the San Diego Union, uh -huh. uh, and I worked there for four years, went to the Baltimore Sun for two years, and then in 1995, I went to the New York Times, 
which the boss first interview and feeling the energy of the place yeah. and the competitiveness of the place. And, you know, to, to right away be on the, on the Mets beat in 1997 and the Yankee beat for four years from 98 to 2001, it was a kick. You know, I loved it every day, sort of going head to head with all these other writers in the city. It was, it was an ex for a person like say myself, who was probably interested in sports journalism to really succeed in the field at a magnitude that you have? Well, first and foremost, I'd say write as much as possible, mm -hmm. um, which I, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, that the guy who won the, uh, the Grand Le Rice scholarship at Vanderbilt my year, Mike Cornwell, he was much more talented than I was. Yeah. Um, I felt like as a writer, and I still feel this way that I need a lot of reps. Uh, and I think, you know, and I, I feel like I benefited from writing a ton uh, through the years. And, you know, whether you're a sports writer, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a baseball scout, I, I do think that that particular skill will serve you well. It'll be a great foundation. You know, there are people who are really good on television who aren't very good writers. Like they have a TV presence. But I think they suffer from the fact that they hadn't written that much. So no matter which route you choose to take, I think writing is such a big part of it. How important is it for really aspiring journalists to have this kind of deep knowledge of the sports that they want to cover? You know, not as much as what I think people believe. Um, I mean, I'm a baseball nerd. Uh -huh. You know, that's the sport <laughs> I followed since I was eight years old. But in, in the middle of my time uh, at the New York Times, my daughter was born in 1999, and I knew that I couldn't be a beat writer uh, for the rest of my life because it's 150 days a year on the road. Yeah. And so I asked, uh, I asked the New York Times to switch me to cover the New York Giants, and I had never covered the NFL before. Uh, and, and when I went there, uh, I, I just found it to be utterly fascinating. And I played to that role of the uh -huh. dummy who doesn't know anything, <laughs> you know, having conversations with people like Michael Strahan, Tiki yeah. Barber, and going and asking them about what they do. And that's really no different than any story. Like I might cover baseball, but like this weekend, as you and I talk, uh -huh. I'm going to San Francisco to do a, uh, one of the, the game broadcasts we have involved the Colorado Rockies. Yeah. I think I've met one guy on that team. So I'm going to be going in there and getting to know these guys for the first time and having conversations with the first time. You know, my, I've always compared it to being like a freshman in your dorm in college for the first time. And to so I might have knowledge of baseball per se, but I don't know these players and I'm going to get to know them. So I don't I think it's overrated to have a deep insight into the sport. And I, and I think really in the end, what you're trying to do is learn about people and learn and uh, tell stories about them. I was watching one of it was a video on YouTube of you at this baseball game. This African American guy had leached over the ledge to try to catch Malcolm. the baseball. Yeah. So tell us about that play and how it developed. <laughs> so pretty much, I'm out here with my son. This is our first ever game. We just moved here to Houston, literally in January, and I just wanted to make the moment special for him. As a father, I feel like it's my job to make sure that I give him the best moments. I apologize to the Astro organization. I didn't know it from, y'all gotta understand, when it's dropping down, it looked like it's coming directly to you. So I reached and my body went for what I know. But we did have a wonderful moment. Okay, so you reach out and what was the reaction that you heard right after the play was over? The reaction was shock, disgust, happy. 
happiness, sweat, a little bit of lust, baby. You feel me? I was in there feeling kind of kind of hurt, but my finger still shaking a little bit. The ball way heavier with the gravity. I'm not going to lie to you. Charlie Ray, we're going to be on TV, baby! So, tell me, it looked like that you went away for a bit, and then you came back. How'd you talk your way back? So, truthfully, Houston loves me, and I love Houston, and they cannot stop me from supporting the Astros. So what happened was, I almost had to give them bop, 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 bop real quick on them, but they wasn't listening, so I showed some love, and they let me come back. They really were just trying to make sure that I wasn't hurt and that making sure that we didn't go off the rails. So salute to the whole organization, great staff. They made sure that I was healthy and I was enjoying the game. They wasn't even making it serious. How do you really make your interviews so interesting? What makes a great interview? Okay, so first and foremost, that interview had nothing to do with me. The in and that got over 10 million views. Yeah, that was all about Malcolm and what a good dude he is. <laughs> <laughs> so he interferes with the ball. It goes over the stands, and and you know we were having conversations off air about going to interview him. Uh -huh. And I when I walked over into that corner and I saw him, he was walking up with his son, and I cut him off, and I'm like, hey, you want to go on television? And his face lit up. Like he was so excited. Yeah. And sometimes when you do those interviews, you might get someone who's really shy or someone who doesn't have much to say. Like he absolutely lit it up. His personality made that interview. Um, you know, my one contribution, and I think it's really important. Uh -huh. uh, and you're doing this, by the way, in your interview, you're doing exactly you're asking open ended questions. Yes. When you ask a yes or no question, and this is a mistake that you see on CNN and MSNBC <laughs> all over the place. They ask yes or no questions, you know, like Jalen, uh, you know, you went to Vanderbilt because it was close to Chattanooga. Right. And that, you know, and and. Guess what? Maybe that doesn't have anything to do with it. And you have to dig yourself out in the answer. If I just ask you, uh, why did you go to Vanderbilt? It's you get a much cleaner answer. Yeah. And that's what I try to do with Malcolm. He was so much fun and I could feel his energy right off the bat. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I just put that on a T as best I could with the questions that I asked. For some journalists, sports aspiring sports journalists, they some of them have the writing down. Like here at the Hustler Sports section, we have amazing sports writers, but they don't have that TV charisma down. And it seems as if over the time you've acquired both very well. How how did you make that work? Uh, I was a disaster, <laughs> and I got a lot of trial and error. <laughs> like I had no training. Like you're training now and doing an interview on air. Uh, I didn't have any of that when I went to ESPN in 2003. Uh -huh. And I'll never forget the first time I was on SportsCenter. Uh, they called me up from, I lived in Westchester County in New York, and they called me to go drive up to Bristol. And so I did that. Um, and I had never uh, been in studio. And Dan Patrick, whose name you probably know, yep. uh, he was the host of SportsCenter that night. I had ne never met him before. I was incredibly nervous. You know, I go and get makeup, badly dressed, I'm sure. I can't remember exactly what I was wearing except for a dark blue shirt. Uh, and I sat down to do the Sports Center hit. A stage manager said, here, you sit over here and wait for the commercial break. So I'm looking at the setup. I'm like, okay, I can do this. I'm going to look right into a camera and just answer the questions that I hear. And then they go to commercial break, and all of a sudden I hear 60 seconds. 
And Dan Patrick starts walking toward me, uh -huh. this legend in our industry. And all these cameras are rolling toward me. And I'm like, oh, my God. I, I felt overwhelmed. And Dan's like, hey, buddy, how are you? how's it going? <laughs> and, and so he sits down. And the stage manager, 30 seconds. And I go, Dan, all these cameras are like, where am I supposed to look? And he said, it's no problem. You start out by looking at the jib. Then you look at me. Then you look at camera one. Then you look back to me. And then you look at the jib. And he asked me the question on air, and I completely froze. It was a disaster. I was getting flop sweat. Uh, and at the end of that, we had this great editor at ESPN named Chuck Salaturo, who came up to me and said, Buster, don't worry about it. Uh, you, we got your free information and over time you'll learn the television. And I found that generally to be true. My heart rate has gone from 250 to 200 when I do TV. You kind of talked about this a little bit earlier that you had overcame some challenges within your early start of being a sports journalist. And I want you to kind of expand on that. What were some other challenges that you experienced at the start of your career? And what are really some tips that you would give to, again, aspiring sports journalists on how to overcome those challenges? It sounds really simple, but I think you have to make sure you're writing for your audience. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and I got this lesson early on from my mom. She hated it when I told this story. My late mother was amazing. Um, you know, I came back from my first Little League game and I, you know, it was uh, like an early reporter, 10 or 11 years old. I'm like, yeah, we gave up six runs at the top of the first. Then we started to come back. It was the bottom of the first. <laughs> and then they scored three more runs. And she listened to this about five minutes. She was standing at the kitchen sink doing the dishes. And she looked at me and she said, Buster, she stopped me. And she said, you have tremendous potential to be very boring. <laughs> and what I, the way I processed that as I got older was, you know, I was in this family of people who don't like sports. None of my siblings like sports. My my stepdad, you know, my late mother, they didn't really like sports that much. I can write for nerds like myself, you know, easily. The challenge for me was to write for someone like my mother. Yeah. So, you know, if I were to talk about who who won the most Cy Young awards or the highest batting average, that would have made her eyes glaze over. But if I could story tell, like CC Sabathi was a longtime pitcher for the Yankees. And I once did a story on him and, and interviewed his mother, Marge, who was just great. You know, she 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 essentially raised Cece by herself. And I asked Cece the story, or uh, asked Margie the story for her memories of when Cece was born. Mm -hmm. She was like 19 years old. And I said, tell me about that. And she said, initially, she was afraid to touch Cece. And then the nurse said, Go ahead and hold him. He'll be fine. And she did that. And she said, after that, I was totally good. Well, that's just the sort of story that my mother could relate to. She could relate to the fact that, you know, Margie is CeCe's growing up. He's the best athlete in the state of California. And Margie pulled him off the basketball team when he was a senior because he got a C in Spanish. Like she was a butt kicker. And those are, you know, those are the sort of stories that I think you can attract a broader audience. Uh -huh. And you always have to remember that as you write stories, who you're trying to tell stories to. My son is 19. He's a sophomore at Hofstra. He'll send me, you know, stories where he'll use acronyms and abbreviations. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> if, you're, if your readers don't know what those mean, they are lost. And that's not on them. That's on you. And I think we all can remember that. What was your favorite sporting event to cover and why? 
So it actually was the when I was in Nashville, my first job at the Nashville Banner, I covered City College basketball uh, and the rivalry at that time between Belmont and Lipscomb uh-huh. was epic in basketball. Lipscomb was a national champion, NAIA. Uh, Belmont was an up and coming program and they Belmont had the national player of the year yeah. and he was the center for the rebels and the center for Lipscomb at that time is the guy who's now currently the, the athletic director. He's the all time. He was the all time leading scorer in history college basketball. Uh-huh. And they were all of these guys were in the same, they'd gone to high school together or, you know, in, in, uh, in separate schools in Nashville they had grown up playing against each other, and the intensity of that rivalry at that time was awesome. And then, you know, I, I since I started covering professional sports for uh-huh. the Yankees, yeah. Mariano Rivera, Derek Jeter, that was an absolute blast because those guys love baseball. I know you're a very busy man. Thank you so much for deciding to join me on this interview today. Sure. What, is, what is a typical day like at ESPN? So I usually get up, uh, I'm an early riser that, you know, it's leftover from the farm days. Usually I'm up by four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, early in the day I'll do preparation. Usually every morning I'll have some elements of, you know, two or three radio hits. I do a podcast three days a week. And then you spend the day, you know, preparing written stories for ESPN.com or in my case, because I'm part of Sunday night baseball, uh-huh. Uh, preparing for that broadcast. Like to, earlier today, I talked to the general manager of the Rockies. And later today, I think I'm going to talk to the Giants general manager to prepare for this broadcast. Um, it's seven days a week. It's a lot of hours. But I'm really, I've, I've felt this way since I first heard Red Smith speak when I was back in high school. Yeah. I don't really think of it as a job. Like, I think it's super fun, you know, to yeah. uh, to track down all this information Travel gets to be a grind for me a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. getting on a plane every Saturday uh, and getting on a plane every Monday. But the storytelling, this never gets old because the context and the stories constantly change. And you, you know, you get to meet people from all over the world, from different circumstances, different backgrounds. It's like the greatest human fishbowl. And then you mix in competition and you mix in money mm-hmm. and, and you have just incredible uh, opportunities to tell stories about people. So you basically feel as if you're doing it for free, essentially. It's not like hard work yes. for you. That that's that's basically excellent. I, I, I kind of. That uh, that's exactly. I, I have. Uh, you feel like like how long am I going to keep fooling people? You know <laughs> that I get to do this. Because again, you know, for me, it's the I love. You know, talk earlier this year, Patrick Bailey is a catcher for the Giants. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, he's got a great backstory. He's. He's very engaging. He's fun to talk to. Just getting to know him for the first time is really neat. You know, the, as I mentioned to you, I've got this group of uh, Colorado Rocky players who I haven't met before. I'm excited to talk to those guys tomorrow. What's an interview that you will forever remember for as long as you're in this career field? So, I, I mean, you get a, a, a bunch of them. Uh, Freddie Freeman is the Braves' first baseman. Um, you know, I, I interviewed him for an E60 uh, documentary a couple of years ago. And he, we had scheduled for the interview uh, an, a window of an hour and a half. Uh-huh. And he knew that the topic was going to involve the death of his, one of the topics going to involve the death of his mother from skin cancer. And mm. the interview wound up being four and a half hours because Freddie kept breaking down. And it was so moving and so touching. And, he, and Freddie worked so hard through that grief. 
and, and for example, he told the story about when his mother died, and I think the age that he was at was eight. He left the the hospital room. You know, they had said goodbye for the family for the last time. She's still in the bed, and then he runs back and climbs onto the bed and just hugs her. And it took him so long to tell that story, and he felt it was important because he wanted to honor his mother. Um, you know, that's on one extreme. I'll give you another extreme. I once, and I this this is the funniest in one of the funniest interviews I ever did. David Wells. It was a longtime pitcher in the big leagues when I was at uh -huh. the Baltimore Sun. Uh, Boomer was an unusual character. He's essentially, you know, he grew up in a single parent home. Uh, his mom uh, hung out with a group of bikers in Southern California. Uh, the Hells Angels were essentially his dads, this group. And so I asked him once, I said, Boomer, what was the craziest thing that you did as a kid? Yeah. And he kind of looked off into, into the air like, like he's calling between a whole bunch of possibilities. He goes, well... I blew up a car once. Like, he was so happy telling me that. And then he paused. He goes, but no one got hurt. No one got hurt. And then he explained. It was like this car that was in an empty lot. And he and friends were and friends were intrigued by it and thought, hey, what would it be like to blow up a car? Did he take you to blow up one? I'm pretty sure he has the power to do so. Oh, well, he could. I think I would have held off on that one, but there, you know, <laughs> you, you get a, you get a lot of exchanges, uh, you know, through the years, Derek, I once told Derek Jeter, uh, you know, that, uh, when I went and spoke to college students and high school students and they asked me what it was like to cover him, mm -hmm. uh, he, yeah, you know, I, he said, well, what do you say when you get asked that question? I said, I tell them you're intentionally boring. <laughs> and, uh, and Derek was like, what do you mean boring? And I said, no, no, no. It's not that. I said, you just wanted to focus so much on baseball. You didn't want to create stories with your quotes. So you made them as benign as possible. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about the sports industry as a journalist? I would say I have seen so many things and, uh, you know, I have, I mean, generally speaking, I feel like the best people in the industry uh, you know, people, legends, you know, Jason Stark and, and Tim Kirchner, I work with and Peter Gammons, they look for the good in people. Uh, I am really cynical after a lot of things that I've seen, you know, for example, how, uh, you know, people will buy tickets to watch games in the belief that their teams are trying to win when in fact, in some cases they're trying to lose mm -hmm. and they don't care if they win or lose that sometimes can be hard to take. I mean, you're, you're in college now. College sports to me, I'm very cynical about college sports and, and sort of where where they're at because it just feels so bottom line oriented. Uh, in a lot of cases, I think probably a lot of the schools, you could just attach the athletic teams to the development development offices, and that would probably be more appropriate than attaching them to the academics. Yeah, sports now, they've become – so popular in some cultures just like the united states we got baseball and football that they sometimes pol politics kind of mingle within them i don't know if you will agree with me on that statement how do you really cover controversial topics in your job and i do think you got to make choices uh, you know i worked in two bagel shops uh -huh. and i thought about this you know in my in the time i was you know selling bagels over the counter how would the owner have felt if i said you know what? My favorite candidate is this person or that person. Like, 
I mean, you'd be fired in 0.2 seconds. <laughs> and I, I understand that I work for a company that, uh, you know, their focus, their, what they're trying to focus on is sports. Mm -hmm. You know, after we've had some national incidents that have happened, like when George Floyd was killed. Yeah. Uh, you know, I talked about it with my producers and I'm like, look, it's too important a moment and it's being talked about so much within uh, you know, the sport I cover, baseball, that it's important to address it and to talk about it at the beginning. And then at some point you have an awkward transition and say, and we're a baseball podcast and now we're <laughs> going to talk about baseball. Yeah. And I think so. I think that you have to try to find a way to thread a needle, but uh, and you have to pick your spots like you're not going to hear me going on my podcast and saying, can you, uh, you know, the, you know, we've got this great series come up this weekend, Giants and Rockies. And oh, by the way, did you see the indictments in Georgia? <laughs> I think people you have to serve your listeners and uh, while at the same time acknowledging real events. You know, I was covering the Yankees when 9-11 happened. Um and, and our editor there, the executive editor, made the decision, look, you cover baseball. You do the baseball. In the rest of the paper, we'll take care of the, you know, what's going on at the World Trade Center site, and we'll take care of what's going on in the war on terror. And I thought that was the right decision. Looking back at those times at Vanderbilt in the Nashville banner, what is some advice that you would give to yourself? Uh, I think – First off, I mean, I'm a procrastinator. And so it was like, can you please conquer that? You know, that would be first and foremost. But I, I, uh, you know, the path that I chose was hard, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm really glad that I did. I went to Vanderbilt sight unseen uh, from central Vermont. I didn't visit. My folks didn't have any money. So I, I went to Nashville. It was a, and I was stunned by how different it was from what I was accustomed to. The attitudes uh, on race yeah. were nothing like I ever experienced. It was incredibly difficult and hard to to hear and see some of the things that I saw. But when mm. I graduated, mm -hmm. I felt it was so important that I experienced those, if that makes sense. Because after a year, I was like, I, I need to transfer. I, I should go back to Vermont. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, nope. This is it's difficult and it's important for you to understand uh, what's going on here. Hustler, you're a wise man. Thank you so much for joining me today at the Vanderbilt Hustler. It's great talking with you. Absolutely. And I got to get more information from you. Uh, you know, some more. I need more data on whether or not you can see seven states from the top of Lookout Mountain. That <laughs> one has always perplexed me. Can't get enough of the Vanderbilt Hustlers VU History Podcast. Make sure to check back monthly on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music for new content exploring the historical context of Vanderbilt's prestige.